Philippians chapter number 4. And if you are willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. And we'll go to the Lord in prayer. And I ask when we do that you would pray with me that the Lord would use and bless our time together. We're going to pick up our reading in verse number 10 and take it to verse number 20. But the text this morning uh, for the message will be verses 10 through 13. But it's a composite text there. It's an entire passage. So... I'd like to give you it all, and we'll work through it in the next week or so. But in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 10, we read these words. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities, not that I seek the gift but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Once again, Father, we come to you because we utterly and desperately need you this morning. Father, we, as the hymn writer spoke, Father, need you to speak. Father, even now as we read the text, you have that tremendous ability um, to awaken dead souls, Father, and to speak to inner recesses that man could never go. So, Father, we ask you to do that now. Father, we know that it would delight you um, if sinners, Father, came to Christ this morning. Not only sinners, but saints, Father, were even more conformed to his image. We know that that great means that you utilize by the power of your spirit, Father, um, is the word of God. Help us, Father, to preach it faithfully, to proclaim it, Father, as a good steward, and at the same time, Let our own souls, Father, receive it in a similar fashion. And Father, may we have an understanding by the power of the Spirit such that it um, is embodied, takes root in our soul and is embodied in obedience. Father, we pray your blessing upon our time to the oldest, Father, to the youngest, that you would give some measure of the Spirit's work in each heart, Father. Even if it's just a time of preparation as we plant seeds, Father, or it's a time of watering as we water already fertile ground, Father, or it's time to reap the fruit of much of your work in the lives of your people, Father. Um, We pray that you would just help us to yield to whatever your desire is, Father, for each of our lives this morning. And that you would use our time together to accomplish that. Not only this time, Father, but the time following as we fellowship and exhort one another, Father, 
um, even in the things we've learned today and in previous days, may it just be a time of abundant growth where you make us more like your son. Father, we know that in some measure, from our perspective, it's contingent upon faithfulness and obedience. So help us to do so, Father. Give us the strength now um, to pursue Christ, to exalt his name, Father, that we may see him clearly and be forever changed and resolve to serve you, Father, in whatever capacity um, that you have called for us today. Father, we need you now. Um, so we commend this hour to you in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for, for standing. If you're visiting with us, we have um, been trekking through this passage of Scripture in the book of Philippians for some time now. Um, and we are coming to a close. So we find ourselves in verse number 10 this morning because last week we ended with verse number 9. Um, Paul is writing this letter and it has been such a blessing in my own life and I pray that it has been in yours as well. Um, but we will just jump right in and pick up in verse number 10. And as we approach verse 10 of this letter, we come to what we might call Paul's final remarks. And he began that back in verse number 8. But in verse number 10, he somewhat transitions to what we might call the final, final remarks. Um, there is a sense in which he actually gets in these final remarks to what we would refer to as the primary purpose of actually sending the letter, the material purpose. Um, that which materially transpired, that which um, happened circumstantially that would provoke Paul initially to even write a letter. A lot of these other things seem what we might say incidental or Paul is adding on top of that. But, but the reason that Paul, one, at least one of the primary reasons that the apostle is writing um, this letter to him, we find here um, in this text. And that is to express his thanks to the Philippian church for a gracious gift to him. And again, if you've been with us or are familiar with the book of Philippians, the historical context of the letter, um, you would understand. You'll remember that at the time that Paul is writing this letter, he is a prisoner in Rome, uh, awaiting trial before Nero, before the possibility of death is on his plate. You may ask, how in the world did he write this letter then? If he's imprisoned in the first century church, in the first century Roman prison, how does he have the freedom and the ability to complete such a task? It's important to know that when we say that Paul was imprisoned, uh, we don't mean that Paul was imprisoned in our present like, like we would be imprisoned today in our present day context for preaching the gospel. And he's not in a small jail cell, um, but something more like what we would refer to as house arrest. Um, you can imagine him more like in a home chained at the wrist to a Roman soldier that would change duty about every six hours. And something that may be notable to mention is that, that, that this house was not supplied by Rome. A man on trial during these times, first century um, Eastern context, in Rome would actually have to provide his own house and food. Otherwise, Rome would leave him outside um, exposed to the elements. Luke actually tells us in Acts chapter 28, verse number 20, that, Paul, quote, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own house or own rented house and received all who came to him, 
preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So Paul here is in his own living quarters, supplying those living quarters by finances that he has either saved up or he is receiving um, from the church at large. And it's impossible to say exactly where all the funds came from, but we can certainly say that in part they came from the generosity of God's children. Um, we read here in chapter number 4 that the church at Philippi, when hearing of Paul's imprisonment, commissioned a man by the name of Epaphroditus to go, to trek to Rome hundreds of miles to minister to Paul's material and spiritual needs. You can imagine on Paul's there in his rented house, chained to a Roman soldier. He hears a rustling outside the door, possibly a knock. He, along with the Roman soldier, rise, chained together. Uh, the door swings upon its hinges, and Paul sees there Epaphroditus. Maybe he knows him. If not, uh, I have a, uh, an inclination that he knows who he is. And with great joy, he receives him in the house. And Epaphroditus at some point tells him, burden. And it is this event, this moment, this time together, that seems to be provoking Paul to write the book of Philippians, and particularly these words. He's expressing it with the utmost joy, his thankfulness for their service to him. You could, and many have, referred to this portion of the letter as Paul's thank you note to the church at Philippi. You know, this past week, Mandy sat down, she's great with child, moving on 38 weeks now. We had a baby sprinkle where the church was just so gracious and giving us uh, so many material things that we would need for the child. And she sat down this week and just wrote thank you note after thank you note for an extended period of time for all the gifts that the church had given us related to a new arrival of a baby. Um, each one she would take care to note what the gift was and to comment upon it and the thankfulness to express the gratitude of our hearts that we have for each and every gift and particularly for each and every person here that we have um, in our life. And it's funny that as I was studying this after this week, I looked at that process somewhat a little differently. You know, as a man, sometimes we question the necessity of things like that. Um, but Paul was um, a grateful man. And that gratefulness provoked action within his heart to express that gratitude of heart uh, more than we often do probably at times. And the thank you portion of this, um, this text is more than a mere formality. It's more than I've got to keep up with the tradition of the day. Paul uses it. Amazingly, uses every opportunity, a seemingly uh, formal uh, part of a letter to close it down. And what we find is just some of the most uh, amazing theological implications and truth that we'll find in the entirety of the letter. Paul uses it to encourage. Paul uses it to instruct. Paul uses it to exalt Christ and the work of the Lord um, in their lives. Paul finds in it and expresses in it um, just the work of God. And I think it would do us well to take note this morning of Paul's attitude towards the church at Philippi as expressed in this letter, in this portion particularly. You can divide the note into three sections, uh, verses 10 through 13, verses 14 through 17, and verses 18 through 20. 
And today we'll give ourselves over to that first section, verses 10 through 13. And in it, Paul begins to communicate, as I said, that there's thankfulness and his reasons for it. He wants them to fully understand what he is truly grateful for. So I'm going to give it to you today, and I'm going to hang it on three points. Uh, number one, I want to make a point concerning Paul's joy in relationship to the gift. Paul's joy in verse number 10 in relationship to the gift. Number two, verses 11 and 12, um, Paul's going to express um, some reasons in relationship to the gift that I'm going to title Paul's contentment. I want you to note Paul's contentment in relationship to the gift. And then number three, I want you to understand Paul's strength, where he derives his strength from in relationship to his joy and contentment. What's the source of Paul's strength, his joy and his contentment? And I'm sure you already know the answer. It comes out of verse number 13. But to summarize the message at the very beginning, so you'll understand where we're going, and we'll repeat it at the end, Paul is exuberantly joyful. And we were just talking with one of the men just the other day about a documentary on the Apostle Paul and how they, they kind of reflected him in that picture as, in that movie as some of a stodgy old man, you know. Never a smile upon his face, just always a scowl on his brow, some disdain for the heretics. But I tell you, after, after trekking through the book of Philippians, it's hard to believe that Paul was like that. That there were times, yes, um, when there were moments where there was a scowl upon his brow, no doubt, and there was a righteous anger in his heart, and there was correction that needed to go forth. But overwhelmingly, the Apostle Paul is presented to us in the book of Philippians as an affectionate man and as a joyful uh, man. So, again, to summarize the message, Paul is presented to him. And that he's not so much rejoicing. Note this, he's not so much rejoicing in the material gift. Although it was a blessing, no doubt. And he, and he appreciates it. But he's not so much rejoicing in the material gift because God has taught him through providence and an abundant supply of Christ how to be content with everything and how to be content with nothing. But because their gift, but, but, but the excitement and the joy was born out of the reality that their gift was a concrete manifestation of God's work in the people at Philippi. And their love for him and their love for God. Boys and girls, to say it simply, the church at Philippi gave Paul a gift while he was in prison because they loved and cared about him. They didn't want him to suffer. They wanted to alleviate that burden. And they wanted the gospel to go forth. And this made Paul extremely happy. But the thing that made him happiest was not the money itself, although it was a blessing. But the fact that God had, had given the church, that congregation at Philippi, a love for Paul so much that they cared enough about him uh, to send him a gift for his own sake and for the sake of the gospel. The thing that makes him joyful is not the gift itself. And that's the argument that Paul's going to make. Um, but the thing that, that, that increases his joy and causes him to rejoice really is the work of Christ and the people of God. And I hope that that's what you'll see this morning. Um, so number one, just quickly, Paul's joy in verse number 10. Note with me the reality, simply. Uh, but it, the text says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, 
that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Note just with me the reality, simply the facts. Paul just notes in a, in a, in a, in a statement fact um, that, that he was joyful to the point of rejoicing greatly. So, not just to rejoice, but there's a, there's a modifier there, a qualifier, that his rejoicing was more than that. It was greatly. That something had happened in his heart and in his life to cause him a, 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 an abnormal, a heightened measure of joy. The word there, greatly, um, that modifies the word joy is actually where the word that we get our word mega from. So you could translate this in the English translation that Paul was mega rejoicing. And this rejoicing was not just a rejoicing for the material gift, as we mentioned, but it was rejoicing in the Lord. It qualifies it as well. That, which means that whatever Paul's happy about, whatever he's blessed by, is a direct result of his relationship with Christ, his union with Christ, and his union with the church. Paul is mega rejoicing. Is something in something that God is doing, Christ has accomplished in Him and in those who are in Christ. So we see the reality. Next, see the reason. What's causing Him to rejoice? He goes on to say that now, at last, your care for me has flourished. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Paul rejoiced that their concern for Paul had flourished into a flower of opportunity. That word there, flourished, um, is an interesting word. It's actually the only time that this word is used in the New Testament. It's translated, possibly in some of your translations, as revived. ESV, NAS, refers to, or translates it that way. Uh, the, the, the CSB, the NIV, translates it renewed. Renewed. The New King James, the King James, translates it flourished. It literally means to shoot up. To sprout again. To grow green once again. As I said, it's only used here. And, it's, and the reason that you see some, some difference among the translations, because it's one of those Greek words, or one of those original words, that you just can't get a handle on with one word. It's, it's a word picture. Many, many words in the New Testament, um, if you study them in the original context, um, are hard to identify or to define with just one translated word. Why? Because they're a picture word. When you look at it, you literally would see a picture of, of that reality. And what it pictures here um, is, a, is a barren tree. A visibly barren tree or a bush in the wintertime. And when spring arrives, there's a season of blossoming. That's the idea. And it's tied here, in some sense, to the joy that Paul has. And you know that joy. Imagine just this last year, as you work through three, four months of winter, the seasons begin to change. Uh, the sun uh, breaches the, the sky in a way that it hasn't over the winter time. You look outside, and what you see upon those barren trees for the last three months is a bloom. And it brings joy to your face. Um, it brings joy, a smile to your face and a joy to your heart. Why? Because it is, in some sense, alive again. Imagine uh, yeah, just the winter, the dreariness, the cold, the dark, the anticipation of spring, and that joy comes in the springtime when the flowers bloom. Life begins to manifest itself once again upon the leaves. It is as if in the environment is once again renewed, revived, as that 
as that bush, that tree, um, that plant begins to flower again. And Paul is saying in some sense, in this picture form, that the Philippians' care for him was like that flower. That it had been dormant for a season of time, but was ever present now in the gift. It didn't mean that they were dead. It didn't mean that they didn't care. That, that bush, that tree we know when we look out back is, is, is alive and well. There's energy flowing through it. There's life there. But there are seasons of opportunity that arise that allow them to show forth that life. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And he qualifies it that because he wants them to know that, that he's not saying in some, in some negative way. Um, because some people have actually taken it that way. They've read it and they said, you know, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now, at last, your care for me has flourished, you know. And you've probably engaged people like that. You've probably been that guy yourself, you know. It's like I needed help all year and you're here finally. Finally, someone's here um, in somewhat of a negative way. But Paul wants them to know and understand that he is thinking the best. He is loving them, thinking no evil. So he qualifies his rejoicing as he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now last year care has finally flourished again. He recognizes it wasn't there, but he doesn't want them to, to, to believe that that is a, a negative comment or a complaint on his behalf. So he goes on to say, though you surely did care. I know you cared. I know you cared. I know there was life in you. And for whatever reason, the opportunity had not yet arisen. It is to be understood that Paul recognizes that they had a continual concern for him through the previous months, maybe the previous years, and for whatever reason, there was no opportunity that presented um, to him, to them, to actually serve Paul. Um, it could have been that they didn't have the capacity to, they didn't have the funds to, they didn't have the ability to do. He was so far away. He was ministering everywhere. But Paul, um, so, so he wants them to understand that he is not complaining about them, but rejoicing in God's activity in them. Um, such that he now truly rejoices because the opportunity had come. And that they're not culpable for not, for not uh, serving him, that they truly did care. Why did he rejoice over this? Um, number three, why did he rejoice? We see the reality, we see um, the reason, but, but why does he rejoice? Um, we'll take it further. Uh, why is Paul rejoicing? Paul's rejoicing... Not in the gift inherently. I mean, how do we know that? Well, Paul's next statement. Verse number 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, he says. Paul is literally saying, I'm not rejoicing about the need here that has been met. Although it truly is a need. Why? Because he's learned in whatever state he um, is in to be content. But Paul's rejoicing in their concern for him and their service to him because it was a clear manifestation of the work of God at the church at Philippi. Verse 17. He says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. I seek the bloom. I seek the opportunity that you have that opportunity to serve me and to serve others and to serve the church at large and thus serve Christ. But when Epaphroditus shows up, begins to unpack the gift, lays out the clothing, sets aside the coins, puts the medicine in Paul's hand, but Epaphroditus sees the, 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 the look on Paul's face. He may have thought Paul's, Paul's smile is because he alleviated some suffering. Uh, Paul, his mind is at ease now because now he doesn't have to 
find another place to live. Or maybe it's because now Paul doesn't have to go hungry again. We received the report and know that Paul was without food for different periods of time. And now Paul is, 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 um, is comforted in knowing that that won't happen again. Why? Because we've given him this gift. You know what Paul's thinking? Paul's thinking as he receives the gift, what a work of God in these people. You know? That they would see in such a man. Hundreds of miles, even to the point of death, what love must be embodied in Epaphroditus and what work God must be doing at Philippi. That's what Paul's thinking. Paul, in some sense, is thinking, lay all that aside and give me the brethren. That Paul was a witness in that moment to the love of God, evidenced by the sacrificial service of the church at Philippi. And in the sending of gifts to Paul, his prime gift, his primary gift, um, then you're missing what true Christianity is. You know, as we sat this past week and unpacked all the gifts, carried them home, um, it doesn't bring us so much joy to think, man, with all these diapers, we'll have so much, we'll save as much money as we can, and our boys' bottoms will be covered. You know? But as we're unpacking it, we were thinking, man, we have, a, we have the people of God. God has so worked in the heart of the people of God at our church that they have given the, that He has given them a love for us that is incomprehensible. You know? And that manifests itself in a hundred different ways um, over a hundred different weeks. You know? That what God is doing, you know, that in the, one reason that we send out service opportunities and I show up even though I'm not needed, it may be in some sense of a, 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 a godly jealousy because I want to be encouraged as I look and I see the, the sacrificial service that our church is giving one to another and within their families. That, that the true gift of God to the people of God is not in the material that we have, but it is in the sacrificial service and the willingness of the people of God to give those things up. Why? Because they, Paul's going to tell us, because they are completely content in Christ. That their joy is not attached to the material blessings, the things, the toys, the trinkets, and even the useful tools that God gives us. But those are just the means to be a blessing to one another, thus exemplifying the very character of Christ who came to be a humble servant um, for us. Philippians chapter number 2. That Paul is rejoicing in the work of God at Philippi as evidenced by their sacrificial service to him. And the material gifts were well received. Why? Because they were the concrete expression of a heart of gratitude, thankfulness, and the love for the Apostle Paul. That this is the Christian life. And number two, it is born out of. You say, how in the world do you get to that place? Like, how did Paul achieve such a status to where his, his grip was loosened from the material gifts such that his joy could have been maintained with or without? How in the world do you achieve such a status within the Christian life? Well, you must learn to cultivate, number two, contentment. Contentment. That's what Paul goes on to argue. Paul goes on to argue that the basis of his joy, um, in some part, um, is the result, the direct result of a contented heart in Christ. Verse 11 and 12. He wants them to know that his joy is not attached to the things. That it's not the money that elevates his smile, you know, and moves his, his praise. Um, verse number 11, he tells us that clearly. 
Not that I speak in regard to need. Right? I don't seek the need. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. Paul's going to continue to argue to the Philippians, as I said, that this mega rejoicing in receiving the gift doesn't spring from material desires or discontentment because he doesn't have those on his part. And he doesn't want them to think so. He wants them to understand and be encouraged that God is working in their lives. So Paul's going to continue to lay that groundwork here for his receipt of the gift and that that ground is not based in discontentment, but contentment of heart. That he's truly content in Christ regardless of the circumstances. Um, that's what Paul tells us. So let's work through it quickly. He says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Um, for, what, for I learned in whatever state to be content. Paul, in some sense, is saying I have true needs. They're not the source of my joy. Why? Because I've learned in whatever state I am in, to be content. And let me just just side note, mark it down or just print it upon your memory. This is one of those all-important texts um, that you need to highlight it, commit it to memory. Um, if you lack wisdom, I beg you to ask of God. This is one of those key Christian principles, those spiritual realities that you must cultivate in your life if you want to be faithful and mightily used of God. And I can't, and I can't use hyperbole there. I can't express it enough. If this week you should put it on your to-do list, you should make it part of your prayer life, it should be one of your long-term goals, learn to be content, cultivate godly contentment. And the younger you do it, men, the younger you do it, women, boys and girls, the younger that you learn to be satisfied with Christ, um, the better you'll be and the more fruitful and faithful your life will be. Why, you might ask? What does it even mean? Well, the word here, content, um, it literally means to be self-sufficient. It means to be self-sufficient. It means to be satisfied. It means to have enough. It indicates independence and a certain lack of need for help and for aid. It's actually a Greek word. It's not, it's, not, it's not a uniquely Christian word. It was used by the Stoics. The Stoics actually believed this concept, this concept of contentment in some regard. But they believed that it was reached to a point of, uh, that it was reached by a total point, uh, a point of total indifference. That when you were indifferent to everything, then, you, then and only then would you be fully content. In other words, you sort of thought of yourself into like this, this I don't care attitude. Um, you might look at some people externally, and you look at them, and they could do without. You say, that person's content. doesn't mean it's godly contentment. doesn't mean that they're satisfied with Christ. Um, you can actually train yourself, men, and some of you have possibly. You can train yourself, women, and some of you possibly have, such that, that, that you have trained your life to where you say, I don't need anything. Uh, one Greek writer said, this is how you do it. Begin with a cup of a, or, or a household utensil. And if it breaks, you say, I don't care. Go to a horse or a pet dog. And if anything happens to it, say, I, I don't care. 
Go on to yourself. And if you get hurt or you're injured in any way, you say, I don't care. If you go long enough and if you try hard enough, you'll come to a state when you walk your nearest and dearest suffer. When, you're walk, when you can walk your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, you know, I, I don't really care. End quote. And that is a contentment, yes, but it's a contentment of indifference. And that's not what's being um, cultivated here. It's not what's being advocated here. Um, the stoic contentment actually abolishes a fe- feeling, an emotion. That's not what the apostle is advocating for here. Another writer actually said the stoics made the heart a desert and called it peace. And that's not the peace of God at all. That's not what Paul's talking about at all. That when he talks about contentment, he may use the same word, but he, doesn't, he definitely doesn't mean the same thing. He doesn't mean indifference. Um, so what does he mean? What we're speaking about is an independence from material possessions that is born out of a true satisfaction with Christ. What we mean is an independence or a self-sufficiency in that sense. We don't need the things, the material possessions, that is born out of a true satisfaction with Christ. That you are so satisfied in Jesus Christ and His providential care for you that faith in His promises and a heavenly outlook causes you to loose your grip on earthly treasures such that Christ is glorified. You want to glorify Christ in being a greater servant. You want to be a more cheerful giver. You want to be sacrificial. You want to be that kind of guy who washes others' feet, uh, other men's feet. You want to be that kind of gal that worships other women's feet. You'll never get there until you cultivate godly contentment in Christ in your heart. You'll never uh, example or exemplify the Apostle Paul or Christ Himself until you begin to realize that, that, that your ultimate sufficiency and that all you need is in Jesus Christ. Until then, you'll grip and you'll grab all of these things. Your joy will be 100% contingent upon those things. But when you begin to see Christ and you begin to value Him above all things, your, your grip becomes loosened upon material gains of this life such that you're willing to give them away for the good of another. That's exactly what Paul sees in Epaphroditus. That's exactly what Paul sees in Philippi. Paul is seeing this reality cultivated such that they're willing to give possibly even in their poverty and at times definitely in their poverty above their ability seemingly. Why? Because they valued Paul's ministry. They valued Paul himself and the ministry of Christ greater. So they didn't guard, they didn't hoard, and they didn't um, uh, you know, uh, dig a hole and, and, and bury the talents. Paul's secret to joy the secret to valuing, um, to sacrifice, is, is valuing true treasure in heaven that was, that was bound up in total satisfaction with Christ. To Paul, he was truly enough. And what Paul began to see in the, the, the church at Philippi was that same reality. Jesus Christ is enough. Therefore, they're willing to give. Even things when they may need them. You know, I can imagine the Apostle Paul saying, you, you know, you may need to take that back. Um, but Paul wouldn't do that. Why? Because he understood in the giving of the gift, their fruit was abounding to a heavenly account. That's actually what he says there later in verse 17. That, that, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Thus he would receive it openly. Why? Because he knew that their account would be added to spiritually. Treasures laid up in heaven. 
Now you may say, that sounds great, and I want that. How in the world do you achieve that status? I want to give you this. Um, How did Paul attain it? What does Paul say? Paul says that he learned it. He learned it. Um, He says, not that I speak in regard to need, verse 11, for I have learned whatever state I am to be content. I think it's important to note the Apostle Paul recognizes um, that contentment was not something that was native to the heart of man. And you know that, don't you? You know that 100%. You know that because you know your own heart. If you deceived yourself um, in not knowing your own heart, it doesn't take long to look into the world that we live in, the spirit of the age, which is discontentment, right? So boys and girls, if contentment is being totally satisfied and self-sufficient, and then discontent means being unsatisfied, such that it would cause you and compel you to, rip, or to, to, to grip after everything in this world for your source of happiness and joy and sufficiency. And you see that emblemized all over our culture and even in our lives. And one of the diagnostic tools that you can use is that when those things are gone, um, where, is, where is my joy? If those things are able to be robbed when they are removed and you question why God to such an extent that you even even you even somewhat bring a charge against him, you might have an idol in your heart and you may be gripping after an idol in your hands, giving worship to those things above Christ because he is not sufficient in that scenario. Right. And you can see that in the spirit of our age. It'd be easy to pick on the world today. Um, but maybe we should just pick upon and examine our own hearts. I mean, that even the Apostle Paul recognizes that it wasn't native to him, right? He says, I learned it. It wasn't pre-installed, downloaded in his heart, even, I think, at the Christian moment of conversion on the Damascus Road. But it was something that through nurture, it was cultivated in a garden um, throughout his life. That's what he says. That God taught him. How? In the, we might say, in the the classroom of God's providence. That he learned it in a life of service. So he says in verse number 12. Verse 11, I learned in whatever state I am to be content. How, Paul? I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer Need. Paul would give us three extreme, three examples, contrasts of extremes that he personally experienced. Number one, he was abased and abounded. Number two, he was full and he was hungry. And number three, he abounded. And at the same time, he suffered, or at a different time, he suffered need. All three extremes he experienced and he learned in those moments that Christ was sufficient and he learned how to be content. He learned how to be satisfied with Christ. Right? To be abased, number one, means to be humbled or to be brought low. Paul, at different times in his life, was no doubt humbled and brought low. But at different times, Paul abounded. Verse number 18, uh, he, he says that as well. He's abounding in some sense in this moment as all of his needs are being met by Philippi. That one of those is the height of having one's temporal needs met and the other is the exact opposite. In Second Corinthians, he refers to himself at times of being in poverty, hunger, and nakedness. Paul's saying, I've experienced both. Number two, he says, I know what it's like to be full. I know what it's like to have full satisfaction in the belly. Same word there, full, is used um, uh, when, when they all ate the loaves and they were filled in the Gospels. At the same time, Paul was hungry. 
It's a standard word that Jesus used 40 days after he fasted. He hungered. Paul says that he was hungry in 1 Corinthians 4. Number three, Paul knew how to abound again. And he knew how to suffer need. He knew what pressing hunger, that he suffered need. Thus, he was provoked to go back to the Father. And Paul says, with respect to these things, I was taught, I learned in the classroom of God's providence and the life that was poured out upon me, the circumstances all around me. I learned these great contrasting realities. And I was taught, and I continue to retain the lesson. The secret was not so much a secret at all. You know, the word here that's used of learned uh, in verse number 12 is actually a different word that's used in verse number 11 in the original. They're translated in our English language, is the, our English translation is the exact same. Um, but the one in verse number um, uh, 12 where Paul says, I have learned both to be full, to be hungry. Um, and he's speaking of contentment. Um, was a word that was most often used to the pagans, the unbelievers, the Gnostics. They were, one, they were those who would go to the temple, they would engage in spiritual uh, worship, and they would seek after a secret. It could literally be translated, uh, I've learned the secret. The secret to contentment is what you could, you could translate that faithfully. That the, the pagans would worship the false gods and they were waiting for some supernatural revelation to come from heaven to fill their souls so that they would be led into the mysteries of God looking for a sign in the clouds or some spiritual awakening. And you know what Paul says? He says the secret men and women is in the normal circumstances of life where God teaches you and cultivates in you a life of contentment wow, through suffering need and through abounding. It's the only way you'll learn it. The greatest, it's, it's, it's one of the greatest miracles to cultivate one of the greatest uh, Christian principles in your life is most often accomplished through the most normal means that God uses. But at the same time, they're not normal at all, right? Because God orchestrates through His providence and His providential care all the things of life such to lead and to guide and to teach you not only about yourself but about God Himself. And Paul is saying that I learned this secret, how through life and ministry on the ground, with boots on the ground, in a life of service, fighting the good fight of faith. And there was times when I needed food in the American culture. It's not because we've suffered need. Um, hardly, will you, uh, Very rarely will you ever actually find a needy person. The, the, the problem is, is that we have abounded and prosperity is killing us by the multitudes. Right? It is making us even more discontent. Why? Because we have and we have. Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, he, he, he exhorts, Moses exhorts the people of God not to forget God's work and where they came from. Why? So that they do not forget God. That the issue with us, I think, more than suffering need and having want, is that we have cultivated a discontentment because of the prosperity of our age. And that we have, and it's at our fingertips, and we want, and we want, and we want more. And that we do not know how to abound. Paul says, I know how to abound. I've learned how to receive with a thankful heart. I know how to deal with wealth and what the purpose of it is. And that if God gives it, it's simply a tool in my hands to honor and to glorify Him. And to recognize that when it's gone, that that's God's work too. That's His, that's His, His work as well. That He gives and that He takes away. And if that's the case, 
then we're to receive it well. Why? Because, because it came from God. Now, this is something that is not natural to mankind. It is something that must be learned and cultivated. Spurgeon says of this, he says, you'll see at once that contentment lies in all states, or contentment in all states is not a natural propensity to man. Ill weeds grow rapidly. Covetousness, discontent, murmuring as, are as natural to man as thorns to the soil. You have no need to sow thistles and brambles. They come up naturally enough because they're native to the earth, uh, the palm which rests this curse. The same way you have no need to teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without any education, but the precious things of the earth must be cultivated. If we would have wheat, we must plow and sow. If we want flowers, there must be a garden and the gardener's care. Now contentment is one of those flowers of heaven, he says. And if we would have it, it must be cultivated. It will not grow in us by nature. It is the new nature in us alone that can produce it. And even then, we must be especially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate the divine grace which God has sown in it. Do not indulge any of you with the silly notion that you can be contented without learning or learn without discipline. It is not a power that may be exercised naturally, but a science to be acquired gradually. That it is something that we must be given over to. This is, this is the example of the Apostle Paul. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, he could say things like, um, if God, in, God's, in my weakness, my, or in God's strength, my, per, my, my weakness was made perfect. Therefore, I am well content in that weakness. Why? Because he had learned there that that is where he is the strongest. And that's the argument that Paul's going to make number three, Paul's strength. Verse number 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We know Paul's contentment and his contentment is born out of a relationship and communion with christ that paul finds in those moments his strength in the lord and there is no doubt about that it must be probably said that this is one of those texts that's probably the most well known in the book of philippians um, by the common man and probably the most abused text in all the book of philippians um it's most often used in our christian context and even outside of it as some but, but, but probably more offensively, within our Christian context, it's somewhat of a triumphalistic mantra of personal fulfillment. You know? You have uh, you know, facing the giants. You have one Christian football team facing another Christian football team. And, and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The problem is, is they're both Christians. <laughs> you know? That uh, what do you do whenever both teams are to obey this text? And they are to find all sufficiency in Christ. But at the end of it, when the game, whether winning or losing, they can say, I was faithful to this text, and Christ truly is sufficient. So what does it mean then? Well, we read this text in its fullness. And I think in its context, I mean, it's clear that Paul's communicating that he can experience all those circumstances, whether being well-fed or being hungry, whether abased or abounding, in any situation and circumstance, that Christ is sufficient and strong enough um, to, 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 to hold him up in true contentment. What this text is teaching us is that Christian contentment, that the Christian's contentment, yours eyes, the Apostle Paul's, is fulfilled by the strength of our Savior. I love what one commentator says. He says, Exegetical considerations, however, require that everything here must be related to the foregoing verses in 11 and 12. He goes on to say, The Apostle's insisting, that in every conceivable circumstance, in any and every situation, he finds the strength 
which vital union with Christ supplies to be adequate for maintaining his apostolic work and for the fulfillment of his desire to accelerate the progress of the gospel, that Christ is truly sufficient, that he was no stoic, that but Paul was no stoic, the Stoicism taught that, that, that the contented were those who were sufficient, quote, sufficient unto himself for all things. And by the power of his own will to resist the force of the circumstances. But Paul was content. And his understanding was that his sufficiency was fully in Christ, that he did not have the power, but through the power and supply of strength in Christ, um, he could subdue his appetites according to the providence of God. That Christ was truly sufficient while he's in Rome. Paul, perfect example. Paul, how in the world are you joyful? How in the world do you present such an attitude of Christ-likeness? Of, 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 that's just opposite of the world. It's, it's, it doesn't understand. How can you have peace in your soul? Your neck's on the chopping block. Nero's about to lay it down. It's over. It's over. Because Paul's true contentment was born out of a life devoted to Christ where he continually saw again and again and again Christ was sufficient to meet his need even in weakness. Not only in weakness, but even when he abounded. Thus it curbed his uh, self-sufficiency from a natural perspective and let him lean upon Christ. Thus he could say, in Christ. Verse number 13, he could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or that may be even better translated, in Christ. In Christ, in that vital union and communion with our Lord, um, he was able to subdue his own appetites, his own nature, his own will, his own um, desires um, for the cause of sufficient to supply um, 